anarchists, violent mobs, arsons, looters, criminals, rioters. Poor kids are just as bright and just as tall as white kids. I said, please don't be too nice. We choose truth over facts. I am your president of law and order. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by the go, you know the you know the thing. In the white room with black curtains. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Inside Agitator. Today, we are going to be doing a 1-6 retrospective, talking about everyone's favorite event that no one's tired of hearing about. Um, Our co-host was unable to join us today. He's been going through some difficult stuff, so if everyone could send him your love and energy, that would be greatly appreciated. But amazing consolation prize. I'm super excited to be joined by Brendan O'Connor. He's a member of the Strike Wave Collective and author of uh, Blood Red Lines, How Nativism Fuels the Right. Um, it's available on Haymarket Books, which we love and love plugging here. Um, and the hardcover's out now. And the paperback's going to be coming out later this year with a preface that's going to deal with a lot of what we're talking about today. Um, so I'm super excited for this conversation. Obviously, 1-6, there was kind of a knee-jerk reaction on the left to outright dismiss it. Um, you know, a lot of it was funny, um, and, and that's part of it. But like we said on our one, first 1-6 episode a year ago, um, it could be funny and serious at the same time. There's a lot that we have to look at and break down about this, and it does represent you know a grave threat to democracy as much as that might not truly exist anyway. And it does represent a rising tide of fascism that, as any leftist, should be concerned about. You know, it's, it's not something to kind of be downplayed. Um, and I do think there's a knee-jerk reaction to kind of the corporate media's representation of events. Um, and for us, I think uh, that's why this conversation is so important, because we need to open up the conversation a little bit and talk about why it's important and, and all the different aspects of the QAnon movement and the anti-vaxxer movement and the white supremacist movements that have kind of festered under Trump. Um, and yeah, I'm super excited to have this conversation with you. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. And um, I guess for starters, we could talk about how, you know, did you kind of feel you had a similar knee-jerk reaction to like, oh, here they go with <laughs> with this stuff when one six happened with the corporate media? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I have, I had been writing about and covering um, white supremacists. Uh, the militia movement, um, various fascist organizations for several years, um, from the, the end of the Obama administration through the Trump administration, um, and (laughs) throughout that time, uh, was frustrated by, uh, the, uh, mainstream media's analysis and interpretation and understanding of, um, the Trumpist movement and moment writ large, and that really uh, took a um, went into overdrive on January sixth, when so much of the mainstream media's reaction to the events of the day were to fixate on um, the like symbolic violence that was committed against the 
hallowed halls of the nation's capital and this kind of thing and the you know the institutions our beautiful institutions oh no yeah um and you know i think that that you know the the uh, the attack on that physical location was a you know it was a deliberate provocation and there and there was thought behind that and it was partially done to <laughs> as so much uh as so much of what the 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 far right does is deliberately deliberately done to to trigger trigger the libs um yeah uh but to but you know i, I but i think also to not like take a step back and be able to look at um, what was happening in wider context. And with all of the threads that you mentioned at the top of the show, kind of coming together in this moment, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the people who were there and who participated in the siege of the Capitol and then the, the, the insurrection, um, the whatever, whatever you want to call it, the riot, uh, there were a lot of different people there for a lot of different reasons. Um, and a lot of kind of currents had borne them to that place. Uh, mm-hmm. QAnon, far right wing Christian evangelicalism. Um, I mean, most of the people who were there were not, or I guess I should say more narrowly and specifically, most of the people who have been charged um, in criminal cases related to what happened on January 6th are not members of like organized fascist groups, but they're clearly participating no. in something that has a, a coherence to it. Uh, and, and yeah. And part of that is an embrace of the ridiculous and the absurd. And I think that is like a self that is largely, they're not entirely uh, self-conscious like I think they're trying mm-hmm. to be funny. <laughs> um, yeah. No, a lot of it is people trying to kind of laugh. Yeah. That dude who got uh, charged for just sitting on Nancy Pelosi's desk, putting his feet up on it, he was going around bragging about how he like scratched his balls in Nancy Pelosi's seat. Yeah. You know, like these are goofy guys at its core. And I think it's also important to point out. You said it's a lot of different people. I think the the corporate media's insistence on these are all white supremacists and this is about white supremacy and and this, that, and the third. White supremacy is a huge threat. You know, we protest in the South. We have to deal with white supremacists all the time. But I look at dudes like the QAnon shaman who in an interview earlier that day was like, yeah, man, I smoked a bunch of DMT and I just know that there's evil spirits inside there. Like, he's not wrong. <laughs> there are. There's evil inside that building. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that almost created on the right this backlash of, oh, they're just lying about it all. And they're, and they're dismissing all of our legitimate claims. And not that I think it's important for us to you know talk about, oh, how they're right in some aspects. And that's not really what I'm trying to go for, but how certain things and certain failures of neoliberalism on you know both sides of the aisle, the, the neocon, neocorporate parties, have enabled and emboldened this, this exact thing to happen. Um, and furthermore, I really liked your point about you talked about how kind of taking the teeth out of Antifa and Black Lives Matter and how the state kind of cracked down on them so hard. And that goes into how the police work in conjunction kind of with white supremacists and these movements. And they're all kind of the defenders of 
are the corporate status quo. And so the people who threatened it, you know, the teeth were completely ripped out and their enemies were emboldened. You saw more and more people, you know, over the course, since the 2020 uprisings, really, they became bolder in the streets, larger in the streets. Um, and a lot of it is driven by white supremacist movements. Um, but sometimes I don't think it's useful to just entirely frame it that way because they're not just defending whiteness. They're defending a very complex web of interests mm-hmm. um, that for different reasons they feel compelled or, you know, that they benefit from. And I, and I think it's worth breaking down and the corporate media obscures it on purpose because mm-hmm. they don't want to talk about the legitimate uh, grievances people do have with these hollowed institutions that they were so upset about being being destroyed. Um, and something you said to me in an earlier conversation was there was kind of this excitement around it. And I think that's part of why there was that knee-jerk reaction on the left, too. You saw people be like, oh, I'm going to be there next time. Mm-hmm. You know, in part, I kind of felt that way because all of a sudden, oh, new, and people actually did something. Mm-hmm. But then you look at it, and they really didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of just it, – it, it fell flat. It just it, – it almost had no impact in the political structure except for kind of an emboldening of the same state forces and security apparatus that took the teeth out of the movements and ultimately caused this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there's I guess there's a couple of things that you just said that, that give me something to think about. Um, I mean, one, not quibble, but I guess one thing that I have been grappling with is that, um, you know, the pacification of the George Floyd rebellion, which saw levels of popular mobilization, unlike anything this country has seen in generations, um, I guess, depending on how you count it, but I think most people seem to agree that it was categorically uh, a larger street movement than even the previous upsurge of Black Lives Matter organizing in, like, 2015. Um, I mean, shit, I say it's even better than the the 60s. I always joke that our generation did more drugs and fought more cops than the hippies ever did. (laughs) Um, Yeah, maybe so. But I think, like, what we saw that summer was that the movement was pacified not only by a crackdown from the repressive apparatuses of the state in the form of um, militarized policing, but especially where I am in, in cities like New York by sort of the progressive and liberal kind of parastate institutions that channeled that militant mm-hmm. energy away from rebellion and away from mm-hmm. um, confrontation and contradiction uh, into mm-hmm. a into a sort of uh, quiescent and um, basically down the dead end of like toothless legislative, uh, reformist reforms and and it really kind of sputtered out, um, I think. And yep. that created, as you say, that then opened up, sp- that reopened the streets to uh, 
far right paramilitary organizing, which had seen a um, an upsurge in mobilization in the early pandemic when correctly <laughs> most you know left organizations and uh and people who had done anti-fascist organizing in the years prior were like we're not like we have to we have to stay inside <laughs> like this like this yeah. this is not like it's not safe. like you know in in the kind of um you know in in that period when there were all the anti-lockdown protests there weren't people counter-demonstrating like they had been in earlier earlier periods in the Trump administration because it wasn't safe to do so. Or I guess we didn't, you know, we didn't understand um, how the virus spreads and didn't understand that. Okay. Like yeah. actually kind of being outside, you're probably okay. <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah. but, but that, you know, allowed that gave, that gave them room to maneuver, to build connections for different factions, to kind of build solidarity with each other without opposition. Um, and then, yeah, late summer, early fall, um, that really continued because I think that the wind got taken out of the sails of um, left and sort of left liberal uh, street mobilizing um, because all of the, everybody's attention was on the electoral uh, electoral. Yeah, struggle. we're going to vote for Joe Biden yeah. and push him left, which, you know, we saw how that went. Right. And I think even before the pandemic, you know, a radicalizing moment for me was when Trump was uh, his inauguration, when people took to the streets of D.C. Mm -hmm. and someone punched Richard Spencer. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was this big debate like, do we punch the Nazis? And that kind of pacification that came from the liberal media and these liberal institutions. And, and you know, you talk about these parastate liberal organizations, you know, to an extent, Black Lives Matter in of itself, the, the, not necessarily the street movement, but the super PAC. Mm -hmm. They very much played a role in, you know, taking the teeth out of it. Um, and I think it's done on purpose. You know, it, it poses a real threat to the corporate structure um, and to property, which is, you know, obviously the number one thing we value. We even talked about with one six in the reaction. It was like, oh, the, the property of the institutions being disrespected, mm -hmm. you know, um, human life kind of takes a back seat, yeah. um, which we're learning even harder now with COVID. But I, I guess for me, you know, you saw all of a sudden this big outpouring in May. And I mean, I saw it firsthand, you know, first protest I went to, it was like 30, 40,000 people. And the cops had everyone with tear gas, shooting people, like it was, it was insane. And, you know, beating people in the streets. And then people kind of started to go home again and fall back and fall back. And we kind of retreated. And then, like you said, the energy that just went into electoral politics, I saw so many people that got so involved because of the radicalization moments of the pandemic and George mm -hmm. Floyd and and even the lynching that took place months before that. It all built into this crescendo. Um, and a lot of those same people who were, are kind of getting involved in politics for the first time were just like, yeah, you know what? We got to vote for Joe Biden. We yeah. got to get Trump out. And at the time, I felt crazy because I was almost like, well, Trump's kind of a good heel. If Biden gets in here and lulls everyone back to sleep, we're we're finished. It's over. And but it was over before you know the election happened. All of a sudden, all the energy was gone. And I think as the movement, I mean, it quickly fizzled out from what it was early May, late May, and early June. Um, but the way the media was representing it was that it was this big grave threat, and cities were on fire. And, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it was this. And so I think that. 
that was recruitment for all these right-wing nutjobs. That was, oh, we have this big, grave threat to respond to. And the same way that we were radicalized by the threats that we were protesting against, you know, these people were standing, oh, well, you know, we got to stop. And, you know, and you saw that ultimately come to a fatal end with, you know, the Kyle Rittenhouse case. And, mm-hmm. But that is, a, that is a product of the right-wing media enabling and putting teeth in their movement um, and the corporate media as a whole doing that. While taking the teeth away and and kind of um, you know ruining our movement that actually does pose a threat to the corporate status quo. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I think that's exactly I think that's exactly right. And um, I mean, the whole <laughs> the Democratic Party and the media ecosystem that is aligned with it its primary purpose <laughs> is to discipline and restrain the left uh yeah it's not really to govern <laughs> it's to definitely not <laughs> because yeah. if it were they would uh yeah it seems clear that yeah the point is to um is to defend uh is like like you said to defend the state uh, to defend property to defend um the more permeable state institutions from uh from uh, uh real social Mass social organizing. movements yeah social movement and, and, yeah, le- and social left organizing movement, yeah. um i think i also want to respond to to something that you said earlier which is to say, like, the kind of feeling of titillation or excitement that maybe some people on the left felt when seeing a, uh, you know, seeing masses of people um, seize a symbol of power and to kind of mm. act basically without restraint and with a feeling of impunity um, and feeling like I, I, I can understand the, at a, at a very sort of base um, instinctual level, kind of maybe feeling a, a sense of, of admiration for a movement that is so self-assured <laughs> that it can do yeah. what it wants uh, without yes, fear yes. of um, either without fear of consequence or kind of without uh, without I guess without fear of consequence in 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 like a double sense, which is to say either in the belief that there will be no consequences or knowing that there might be consequences and doing it anyway. Um, yeah, that that something we lack. Yeah, I mean that, yeah, that's yeah that's some, that's something I think that you know that a that is indicative of a a movement that is like really feeling itself <laughs> um yeah yeah and hey listen man i turned on the tv i see them chanting hang mike pence and i'm going damn that would be pretty cool <laughs> that, would, right. that would be hard. right and, you but that quickly turned like, into this fear right because that masses were charging the capital i'm like they're gonna respond to this <laughs> this is not gonna go unanswered there will be consequences because on the left we understand and know that right and i think this is something that people 
on the left are still struggling with and trying to make sense of, and I wouldn't fault anyone for this because it is sort of vexing, but that is that the, like the popular Trump movement and even Trump himself in like campaign mode, uh, and then just like the wider fascist historical, like fascism as a historical political tradition does contain um, criticisms of capitalism. I, I won't, I want to, I don't want to say like it's a, like it contains a critique of capitalism. That's probably giving it too much credit, but it's anti-establishment, yeah. It's sort of which isn't necessarily anti-capitalist, but it feels that way sometimes. Yeah, and it pisses off the same people that we want to piss off. It sometimes <laughs> feels like we have common enemies, yeah. even though they're our true enemy. And I think what's hard to understand about that is what I think the left doesn't understand is that you know a couple things. I think Trump really did make the establishment nervous, especially after the 2020 uprisings. They saw how he handled it and kind of was this heel and almost. Uh, emboldened it in a way because all of a sudden we have this guy in the White House who's saying the quiet part out loud Mm -hmm. um, and walking over, you know, tear-gassing protesters to hold up a Bible in front of a church. Even MSNBC was framing that the same way as leftists were, which was like unheard of. Um, And so you had this heel and then also he he himself disrespected these hollowed institutions. (laughs) The one-sixth disrespect to the hollowed institutions is an outgrowth of his disrespect for them, which I think sometimes on the left, that was titillating. It was like, yeah, all right, you know. And I think what we have to understand is, um, you know, and I think the other thing is they say, oh, the election's rigged. And for a lot of us, we believe that the primary was rigged Mm -hmm. and that Joe Biden was kind of this installed candidate. Um, And, you know, I believe that to just be fact at this point. But, you know, and that can be debated. But I think here's what I often think about. I think this would help people understand one six. If Bernie was the candidate who won the primary and won the general election, and let's just say won the primary, because if he did, he would have won the general election. I think we all know that. I think you would have seen a different series of events unfold. Um, like, for example, there was a whistleblower at this right-wing super PAC in about October who quit his job and was like, I'm blowing the whistle on the fact that this super PAC that takes corporate money and gives it to Republicans, they're getting behind Joe Biden, all these cor- all this big corporate money. What's up with that? This isn't what I signed up for. I, was, I worked at a Republican super PAC. And that big whistleblowing... It, it always stood out to me as weird. I was like, why is that? Um, and later after the election, there was this Time Magazine article that the right wing loves to point to as as, as saying the quiet part out loud that kind of was like how America's institutions work together to defeat Trump. And it talks about how all this big moneyed interest and institutional interest um, kind of got behind Joe Biden and kind of greased the wheels, fueled with money and got him into office, um, which isn't rigging an election. But it is to an extent undemocratic. You know, ever since Citizens United, our democracy has, you know, definitely been weaker than before. Not that it was as super strong to begin with, um, where you do have these forces that can put their fingers on the scales. Um, I think if Bernie was the candidate in October going into the election, all that corporate money, all that institutional money, they would have sided with Trump in a heartbeat if, if the choice is Trump or Bernie. And then what worries me is then one six. 
that has it already had some institutional backing. You see the Capitol Police letting people in, taking selfies with some of the the rioters. Let's call them. They say that about us. They're taking selfies with them. They're letting them in, and there's a whole bunch of now things that are coming out that show that um, the government kind of knew that one six was going to happen. And that's something I want to get into later. Is like why they might have and not done think more to stop it. Why maybe they were leading it and had agent provocateurs and people arrested who were associated with government psyops. Why they were there. You know, that's something we can break down later. But I think I just to make the one point is one six would have had institutional backing. And I think you actually would have seen people like Ilan Omar, AOC, Bernie Sanders attacked by this mob and perhaps enabled to by Capitol Police and by the people that are supposed to be defending democracy. You very well might have seen the fucking National Guard backing them up. Who the fuck knows if there was really a threat to the corporate order? And, you know, you know, I have a lot of like true leftists like, you know, Maoists and that listen to this podcast and are like, you know, Bernie's no threat to the corporate order. He he is. And and he would have been. Um and I think one six goes a completely different way if Bernie Sanders is the candidate, um, and and perhaps succeeds and actually has even more teeth to it, and isn't just the QAnon shaman dressed like a Viking, but truly people with real institutional backing that may be the underbelly, given weapons under the table, however it works. But I think you could have actually seen a real coup. To, to to keep socialism out of America and install Trump as president, which was what they thought they were doing with Joe Biden. No, Joe Biden, the socialist. But as you and I both know, Joe Biden's no socialist. Um, not not the way the right wing media pans him out to be. And so, you know, have you heard that kind of take before? What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm uh, <laughs> I'm reluctant to go too far down the counterfactual but i do think it is absolutely true that if bernie sanders were the democratic party candidate uh you would have seen major factions within the party either abandon him or defect like and just kind of throw in with the republicans um mm-hmm. in in the general and then if he if he if he had been able if he were to win anyway um yeah i think the 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 reactionary mobilization um to prevent his inauguration would have been even wider, as you say, to stop the Jewish so- socialists from, yeah, from yep. assuming the presidency, I think uh, it would have. I think it would have been bigger and more violent, and had, uh, let's say, let's say it would have been a, uh, a an even more diverse coalition of actors. Um, yes, but. But that isn't what happened. <laughs> no, it's not. And it is, it is kind of like, you know, counter history. Mm. Um, but I think it's important to analyze because, hey, guys, this is a real threat to us as the left. <laughs> like, yeah. like, this is not something that just because it was Joe Biden and we don't like Joe Biden, it could have been us. And then this would have been very, very bad. Right. And I think, I think why this is, you know, what, one of the reasons why I think this is, this is important for people on on left to interrogate um, and to understand is because 
amongst other things, it reveals uh, the fractures within the capitalist class and that there are there are rivalries, there are competition, there's competition, there are um, contradictions with, of varying degrees of significance between interest groups within the class. It's not a monolith. Um, and yeah. understanding that balance of forces in what I believe to be a period of crisis. Like if we, if we really think <laughs> that, that we are in a, a period of, of, of crisis within the system, um, then it is imperative to understand the balance of forces on the other side, because everybody's trying to get things to break their way. We are trying to do, <laughs> we are trying to do that. Um, yeah. And there are, you know, it's not, it, it, it's not, um, not every capitalist is the same. Not every capitalist wants the same thing and not every capitalist is making the same alliances uh, with other, um, with other political actors. Uh, and I do think that like, yeah, I don't know. I think I think it's naive to imagine um, that there isn't something that, that there isn't something worse, kind of waiting uh, to to take the stage. I mean, we often invoke the choice between socialism and barbarism, and yes, socialism is, or rather, yes, uh, capitalism is already barbaric. Uh, but there are, you know, there there are more barbaric forms of of governance and yes. of rule and control that may well come to pass um, should the ruling class deem it necessary to to sustain their rule. Uh, and, exactly. And you know, I, I, I'm not saying that I'm not going to going to say that January sixth was like a a foreshadowing of things that are certain to come um but rather in the indicative of the fact that like these these actors are out there already um and and we need to the barbarians exist <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah exactly um and we need to know how to deal with them yeah and I think we've known for a long time, and we've kind of been unable to. And I do think it's about, to a great extent, meeting them in the street, the same way that they were able to push back into our homes, strike fear in us, um, and not to get too, you know, with the crazy rhetoric. But we we should have been doing the same thing. And that's what Antifa was calling for at the beginning of the Trump presidency. And I remember, you know, it was people really made it like, Oh, this threat of the all right, you know, people are overplaying it. This is this is crazy. And there was a point where the left were the people ringing the bell, and it was the liberals going, "Oh, it's not, it's not that bad. Let's let's take it easy." And it almost feels like one six kind of reversed that because then the liberals are ringing their own bell. That you know, obviously, I think we both have objections to the bell they're ringing. And so there was this knee jerk reaction of, "Yeah, let's let's just completely downplay the threat. Let's not talk about it." And I think that's an important thing to respond to. Like, I saw a tweet from a pretty popular leftist on Twitter. I'm not going to like name them, but it was like, "Like this if you don't give a fuck about one sixth. And it got like a good amount of likes. And I think people kind of just are like want to dismiss it because 
they didn't like the liberal response. And I think there's like good reason for that. You saw the boot come down so hard with the Biden administration. And his DOJ, quite frankly, has prosecuted the left wing worse than they prosecuted even these these capital rioters, these insurrectionists that they make out to be this huge threat. And, you know, I think one of my greatest fears, um, because I feel like it's the final nail in the coffin for us preventing barbarism, if it will come, is that we will bring the war on terror and the tactics used in other countries and to destabilize other countries and foreign movements home against our own people. And I think 1-6 was kind of the go-ahead um, for the for the liberals to do that themselves and to embolden a state apparatus that, frankly, and this is where this might get a little more conspiratorial, I think has kind of maybe purposefully emboldened these barbarians and has kind of at the very least, allowed them to exist in a way they don't allow us to exist, right? Um, and then you can get you can get a little more counterfactual from there. But I think at the very least, you know, a great example I think is um, some anti-vaxxers took over a cheesecake factory. I don't know if you heard about this, mm-hmm. um, and they got exonerated, and they're calling themselves the Exonerated Cheesecake Factory Six, <laughs> kind of as like a ja- as a jab to the Central Park Five, yeah. And I'm just thinking, imagine if, like, a Black Lives Matter group took over a cheesecake factory. A, you wouldn't stop hearing about it for a month on Fox News. But B, those people would be in prison right now, like, almost certainly, you know, um, and and would not be exonerated by, by the, the capitalist judicial system. Um, and so just – and it might not be a conspiracy. It might just be how the system is supposed to function, right? Um, and it might have to do more with racism, the fact that these are well-off white people, Black Lives Matter protesters are either black or standing up for the rights of black people and breaking rank with white supremacy. So that might – and that might be as simple as it is. But I, I do question if maybe there's something more there and, and if it's even useful to unpack because I think it is important to understand the enemy and what we're up against um, as far as I think you know, preventing the barbarism that might be waiting at the gates. Yeah, I mean, I do, I I think I think you're spot on to identify the like one one of the threats that is arrayed against us is that um, the Biden administration and sort of liberal Democrats across the board will happily increase the state's uh, surveillance capacities, its ability to, um, you know, the, the, all, all of the, the mechanisms of social control and disciplining um, ostensibly, not even ostensibly, um, in, in the, you know, immediately, in order to crack down on far right organizing and you know fascist terror, uh, but that capacity is never um, narrowly applied in no, in no. Uh, 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 you know uh, by by the bourgeois state. Um, I don't per se have any problem with. <laughs> A, a state 
uh, cracking down on fascist terror. Uh, yeah, no, I'm a communist. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, yeah, like I, yeah. But you know, then we have to talk about the nature of the state. Uh, but yeah. in this one, the one that we are ruled by, uh, mm-hmm. expanding those capacities will inevitably come to be used both against the left and also just to increase the state's capacity, increase the the state's ability to um, criminalize and incarcerate black people. Uh, Yep. So this is not, this is, this is certainly not the, you know, the response or the solution that the socialist and communist left ought to be looking to or, or calling for. Um, and I think that was something I had the biggest objection to was like all of a sudden, and even the rhetoric around like, they, if we did this, they'd shoot us, shoot right, them. Right. And it's like, no, 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 no. Tr- treat us the same way you treat that. Like, don't, it's about not shooting us, not shooting that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and the, yeah. And, and I think for me that there's this real, cause I think at, at that point in our political imagination, we had given up on a mass movement. We had given up on all these things. We were fully invested in electoral politics, as we were talking about earlier. And I don't think we saw a solution to the threat of this, this, the barbarians. I think that's a good uh, shorthand for calling grouping them all together. We we saw, we we looked to the state for that answer, and we a lot of people wanted the state crackdown on them. Not really, I think, fully understanding why that might why that might be playing it right into the state's hands and actually hurting us in the long term. Um, and if I could bring something up, I don't know if you heard about this, but. So on January 2nd, 2021, uh, a bunch of three percenters were communicating that they had people waiting on the shore of Washington, D.C., ready to bring in guns. Um, and, and that was going on in chats. A lot of uh, the anti-fascist kind of people that go into these chats were reporting that this was something going on. Um, and then the next day, the D.C. military base, Fort McNair, stated that it had threats of an Iranian speedboat attack against it. So it needed to upgrade security on its shores um, where so and, you know, I'm immediate whenever it's Iran, I'm immediately suspicious because <laughs> like, you know, I, I saw a great post um, that was showing articles from every decade since the 80s that say that Iran was two years away from nukes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and it's the security state's favorite kind of like boogeyman. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on one six Fort McNair, same place became a cog site um i don't know what that cog stands for but if i play toontown um all my toontown fans out there my tunes are gonna love that it became a cog site where congressional leaders were evacuated to while the capital riot was underway um and so it looks kind of in retrospect now that this has all come out that the iranian threat was bullshit (laughs) and that um you know, I mean, it's. I think it's pretty obvious to both you and me that Iran wasn't going to launch a speedboat attack on the, on the continental United States. Mm-hmm. That kind of seems ridiculous just outright. Um, but the military clearly had reason to believe something was going to happen um, and wanted to upgrade their security. And Iran was kind of a useful scapegoat, basically meaning that, you know, days before the capital riots began, they used this speedboat threat as the justification for beefing up security meaning they could still claim they had no advance warning of 1-6. And I think that's what's so funny is like, we know how, how do I put this? We know how intense they monitor the left, 
and are all over the left. Just, I mean, in a in a in a million different ways. Um, and there's a there's a little clip from. I'm trying to think where this is from, but it's from I think CIA documents. But it's a little blurb that says from the late '60s through the late '70s, Army intelligence agents were present at every demonstration of more than 20 people. Um, and we know that now it's declassified information, but there's kind of this narrative that, oh, and then they stopped doing that and it's all good. But I think they still have a really tight handle on the left and what we're up to it. And, and for me, the question is, is it that they just don't pay attention to the right wing and truly didn't see it coming? But then this report is kind of indicative that they did in fact see this coming and, and move to not stop it. And then there's obviously a lot of people who take that a step further and say that it was driven and led by the FBI, deep state actors, whoever, and even QAnon itself is kind of a this breadcrumb trail to steer people in the wrong direction. We can get into that later. But the fact that, you know, I, I have trouble believing that they didn't know that this was going to happen. And then that raises the question for me, well, why did they then let it happen? Mm-hmm. Did the did the state security apparatus see this as an opportunity to expand their powers after, you know, almost a year and a half of being under siege from, you know, the left wing and the right wing and a lot of anti, you know, people are rebelling against the system and at least the paradigm has shifted where people truly aren't buying it anymore. I think it would behoove the state security apparatus, not just for that reason, but just for their own funding and their own uh, power to kind of maybe let something like 1-6 happen that would then embolden the liberals who are traditionally, you know, I'm not going to say they don't love expanding, expanding state power. You know, Joe Biden practically wrote the Patriot Act himself. But, you know, uh, uh, liberals who kind of have a tendency to to, ha- to wring their hands about that kind of thing, kind of unclench those hands and say, no, please, please state security apparatus, save us, expand. Here's all the funding. Take what you need. Um I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that that's that's possible? Do you think maybe they just weren't paying attention? Um, I mean, I don't know that there is a singular explanation for the for the state's uh, failure to anticipate or prevent January sixth um, from happening. I think part of it is like. Uh, a combination of like ideological blind spots and also ideological sympathy. Um, I mean, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like there's a reason that there were so many cops, like off duty cops and ex military uh, there, (laughs) which is to say Mm -hmm. that um, you don't have, like you don't have to make a conspiracy about it. It's just that like, they agree. <laughs> like they, yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. they, yeah. they are, or, or if they don't outright agree, they, um, understand themselves to be on the same side in some sense. Yes. This same is, enemies. This, this is complicated by the fact that there was, you know, um, like individual capital police officers who sought to obstruct the mob were attacked. Um, yes. 
which so that is to say that like there's not without <laughs> it's not uncomplicated uh yeah just like everything else cops aren't a monolith <laughs> right. but in general there's an ideological yeah. sympathy ideological yeah um, ideological sympathy and resonance and and i do you know i, I don't um but for every cop that fought the mob and and you know the three of whom were killed there were you know a lot that just opened the doors yeah. and let people in and were taking selfies the majority of them i think were at the very least like you said ideologically aligned with these people yeah um and sympathetic to what they were trying to do i don't think any of them were too thrilled about the joe biden pre- presidency you know no pro- yeah pro- odds are probably not um especially the way the media was kind of painting a false connection between black lives matter and joe biden you know obviously joe biden ended up giving a lot more support to the police state but the police themselves did not believe that that was what was going to happen. I think they feared consequences and a defunding from a liberal administration. Obviously, that never came. But I think just on that simple level, um, there was there was yeah an ideological consistency between um, law enforcement and the people breaking the laws that day. Yeah, and I, I mean I do, but the, we like there is still the significant question of like. How then do we make sense of the fact that hundreds of people have been charged with pretty serious crimes um, in yeah. connection to what happened? Um, and I, like, I don't know. I'm I'm still kind of I'm, I'm still grappling with this. I think part of it has to do with the fact that uh, that. It was embarrassing to the state yes. that the state was yes. uh, uh, th- that the that the um, that the frailty of some of these institutions was revealed, um, yeah. and that n- demanded a a response. And because the reality is that there has been. A crackdown from the Justice Department um, in this past year, but I think even that is well. Also, Biden is in charge of the DOJ. At the end of the day, the administration, you know, kind of does yeah. have power of the DOJ, and that's why I think it's important to criticize, you know, their lack of repealing kind of some of the Trump statutes about criminalizing protesters. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and insane sentences that have been given to left-wingers. And sure, some of the Capitol rioters have been given what I would call fair sentences, um, although obviously issues with the whole carceral system as a whole, but, you know, fair sentences. Um, but a lot of them have kind of been treated with kid gloves. Um, right. I remember there was a – yeah, and, 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 and it is Biden's de- – so, you know, I don't think it's too hard to kind of think about for me because it, it, I look at it as – you know that that ideological sympathy is still kind of almost fully on display, even though they did these people did face consequences for kind of the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't always the highest of consequences that you know, and I think if it was the left wing, you know, you would have seen much higher consequences. And I don't even think that's up for dispute. There are left wingers that did less that are facing higher right. consequences. You know, yeah, l- lower consequences, and then also even just like being. That the response it was not a uh, you know immediate and like terrible violence <laughs> from uh, 
the National Guard or or or, or whoever it might have been, um, like in the moment, but rather sort of availing. Um, these people are, are enjoy the the the, the Capitol rioters, uh, even in being slapped with criminal charges, like still get to enjoy the privileges of uh, a so-called criminal justice system, which is designed <laughs> like in their favor uh, rather yes. than just yes. getting their heads cracked open <laughs> uh, yeah. On, yeah, on, on the steps of, of the Capitol. Um, but, 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 and, but that I think goes some way also to helping us think about like, well, are the, you know, were there agents provocateur that were inciting this? Um, or was this really a, like, organic and spontaneous um, conflagration? Yeah. Which I think uh, it goes to one of the things you said about the, the you know, army and the military and ex-military people being there. I think a huge part of that's lend, lended credence to oh, this was a PSYOP, this was done by the feds, is the fact that there were a couple of ex-Army PSYOP division people at the right. I think Ashley Babbitt herself. But then you look at the example of Ashley Babbitt, that's clearly someone who truly believed this stuff. <laughs> and yeah. and and I think to an extent you could hand wave a lot of it away with, no, these are just people who are ideologically sympathetic. But there there, there are big questions for me. Also, the person who placed bombs around the Capitol – um, the pipe bombs, you know, there's like one grainy video that the FBI released. They're like, oh, we have no idea who this is. I mean, I know a chick who lit a cop car on fire and they found her because she bought the shirt that she was wearing on Etsy and they narrowed it down to just her and she's in prison. So it's like, you know, when they want to find someone, they can. Yeah. Why is it that this person who placed pipe bombs is like not able to be found? Um, and so there's, there's a, there's a lot of questions for me. Um, and I think it goes into kind of uh, you. You remember the 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 Whitaker governor who there was that kidnapping plot. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. um, it's come out now that almost everyone in this paramilitary group that was going to supposedly kidnap the governor was a Fed. There were like you know I think it was like six or seven dudes that were Feds that were a part of this, and they all jokingly referred to the guy who they pinned it all on as like Captain Autism. And they were like playing this guy who's homeless and, you know, obviously unstable to then almost hyping him up to do this. And, you know, there's endless examples of like, you know, the FBI picking up like a, a mentally disabled Muslim teenager and being like, here's money, go buy the stuff from Walmart <laughs> and arresting them for building a bomb, yeah. you know, kind of to make these threats. And it might be just as simple as that. But there's a lot of things where you look at it and go, hmm, what is, what is, is there something deeper going on here? where this is being emboldened and they do have a handle on it. And this was almost not purposefully done, but allowed to happen to then expand their apparatus and their security state apparatus that can then obviously be used against the left. Like we're saying. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm very cautious about, going too far down that rabbit hole 
because I think that it actually overcomplicates like what right it no, overcomplicates is not the right word it but it it um it cedes too much power <laughs> to yes to the state to to then say that like everything that is happening is determined by a plan that has been set by like some guy <laughs> in Langley uh, Alan Dulles's ghost right. yeah and i don't think that that is um very marxist <laughs> to to it's, to, ima- no. to imagine that that is how the world works but certainly it is true though like that there is some there is some there is some struggle and relationship between parts of the state that are trying to control um the situation and the movements that are emerging in this period of crisis uh mm-hmm. Uh, and so like yes like there there like i absolutely believe that there were you know um representatives of of you know security forces however you want, you want to describe it that were involved in january 6th in some capacity whether by yes. way of trying to steer it in one direction or another or just because they <laughs> like were along for the ride um yeah yeah and but i i think that i don't know like i'm i'm very reluctant to to say that that then means that this is you know basically like controlled opposition um yeah because I think that it, it like it flattens the terrain in a way that just doesn't yeah. doesn't seem to make sense to me. Because like I said before, like even like f- both within both within the capitalist class, but then also within the state, there is struggle and contradiction. And if there is one lesson that we've learned that we that we can extract from the George George Floyd rebellion and the responses to it, it's that police and the security forces in this country are 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 increasingly seeking to assert themselves as autonomous political actors and forces against any form of regulation and democratic control whether liberal or socialist <laughs> like that yeah. that they that they are throwing off um any kind of oversight and 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 that is that is just to say then that like the state is not a monolith and um when we try to make sense of things by saying like well i don't know like maybe this is like maybe this just happened because um Because there, you know, was some CIA guy, <laughs> like who? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's like, I, like, and I well, think, I'm, I think I'm for so, me, it always so goes back to about that. It just, and it always doesn't matter what happens, really. 
you know, the ruling class can win. They can shift. They can move. They can always kind of come out on top of any situation. Everything can get played and spun a certain way. And I think that enables a lot of people to think that it's all planned out because it always ends up working for capitalism. And it's that saying capitalism wins every day until it doesn't. You know, it, 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 it's sometimes easy to say, oh, this is all part of a plan. But I think to your point about it not being a monolith, I think most of the state and all of its different actors and all the different CIA agents, FBI agents, whoever, <laughs> most people were aligned and fine with Biden getting in there mm-hmm. and, and it all being good. There was a huge institutional backing. Yeah. But I, yeah. I, and I think it's use, and I think it's so important what you said to not view it as a monolith and realize that there are struggles and contradictions within this. Because I think what, what then it opens up the possibility for is that there are lesser actors and smaller actors who do do things and and can steer things a certain way. And I, I, I agree with totally what you're saying. You give them too much power, and it completely eliminates any political imagination, and it plays right into the whole point of the protest movement was to challenge their power and hold on things, taking back the streets in a way. And then when you act like they control everything and they're in charge of everything, you're basically doing what you know anyone does. Oh, the protests are a psyop. They're just trying to get you to throw the bricks. Right. You know, like it, you know, they don't want us to do that, but right. people think that they do. Um, yeah, I and, mean, and like, you end up kind of yeah, like the, you end up kind of sounding like them. Yeah. Um, and so I'm hesitant too, and that's why I wanted to have you on because I knew you'd kind of disagree with <laughs> with certain parts of my analysis, and I wanted to work this out because we've talked about it on the pod a couple of times. We talked about the first one six episode, and it's been difficult for me to hash out all these things I'm thinking about, it, and you've been really helpful with this for sure. But I think it's me applying my analysis of QAnon mm-hmm. to one six mm. because I do see QAnon at this point in time as a controlled opposition mm-hmm. to an extent I do. And, and I, I don't think that's crazy to say. Um, I look at things like making all those people line up at Dealey Plaza because <laughs> they think the Kennedys are going to come back to life. Yeah. Um, that then makes me a QAnon guy. If I say the government <laughs> killed JFK, you know, it's, it's kind of brilliant. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, if you talk about the deep state and the Democrats. People accuse you of being an Alex Jones right winger when sometimes there's, you know, legitimate reasons to talk about these things. And so I've always looked at QAnon kind of as this breadcrummy thing that's led people, you know, who have inst- who have gre- legitimate grievances sometimes. Some of it's crazy. But even the predecessor to QAnon kind of Pizzagate, mm-hmm. I remember that being like the way the media ran with that and spun it into something. It was crazy because, you know, I remember I learned about the Lolita Express before I learned about Marxism on 4chan. I knew about the Jeffrey Epstein. Like, I was like 12 on the internet. Like, whoa, that's crazy. Like, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. and I and, and it's so wild because it feels like uh, watching your childhood best friend become the nation's biggest terrorist oh in God. mainstream. My, my, my ex-girlfriend's dad is like telling me. Have you ever heard about the red pill? And I'm like, holy shit, is this stuff real life now? I, I, th- I thought I haven't heard that since I was 13. And I'm like, no, no. Um, and it felt like this monster coming to life. And you know, I, I, I think about how often you know these ideas, these stories that we tell about our ruling class uh, and the pedophile Satan worshippers that that I, I, to some extent are are you know counterfactual and not useful. You know, 
they've almost been made that those aspects of it have been made more intensified by how far it's gone off the rails. And I do think with the QAnon thing, it's easy to just look at it for me and go, well, they were expecting Trump to arrest Hillary Clinton and he didn't. So people needed an explanation for why. Mm -hmm. And it was always playing 4D chess and, oh, it's coming and there's going to be military tribunals. And it was waiting for this day because something that they were expecting to happen didn't. It very much reminds me of Russiagate with the liberals. They couldn't fully comprehend why Hillary Clinton lost. So they spun out into Russiagate. You know, I look at Russiagate and QAnon as like similar phenomenons where people – all of a sudden, reality was colliding with what they thought was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so they needed to come up with explanations. But I, I am sometimes curious that if the QAnon thing, it maybe didn't start this way, but that it it was. And the, and the reason people believe in QAnon and trust Q is because there have been times where he said things that only someone in the government could know and predict. And those people, and it's few and far between, but people cling on to those things. And that to me sometimes suggests that maybe there is, and it's not the state as a monolith, but there is an actor within it who has spun these people out into this crazy conspiratorial nuts off the deep end direction as a way. Have you heard about Operation Mindfuck? No. What is Operation Mindfuck? In the, well, you've heard about the Bavarian Illuminati and people talk about the Illuminati, right? Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you see videos on YouTube, Jay-Z and the Illuminati. You know, that's become people's analysis of like of the ruling class mm -hmm. and the bourgeois capitalists. In the 70s or 80s, I think 70s, um, these guys planted articles in Playboy and all these different magazines about the Bavarian Illuminati. And it was kind of done on purpose to then make it – to make, spin conspiracy theorists in that direction. Oh, there's an Illuminati. And make it crazy. Mm -hmm. And kind of like, oh, so – and it's called Operation Mindfuck. And then I look at um, – there was a really, really good article in Salon that – kind of uh, jump-started a lot of my thoughts on this by Robert Guffey, who writes how it, a lot of what he hears from QAnon and what QAnon is is kind of akin to some of the stuff that went on with UFOs back in the day mm -hmm. when they, like, let people believe there were UFOs and spun them into a certain direction. You know, there's precedent for this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I guess as someone who studies the alt-right and is obviously very familiar with QAnon, do you think... And, and even if it's not useful to think of it this way, do you think there might be some credence to it being controlled opposition? Do you think I'm, I'm completely on a limb here? Um, I, I think I think the idea that Q is in someone in fact within the government uh, is probably as valid a theory <laughs> of who Q actually is um, as, as any. But I think this is actually like a really good example of the kind of complicated and complex dy like social dynamics that we're talking about because what we've also seen as the QAnon um, uh, movement or subculture has grown and matured is that as important as the Q drops themselves are, I think they call, they call them bakers, like all these commentators and, you yeah, know, people, the people on, who decipher Q. people who decipher and like, and, and, you know, are writing all this stuff and doing, you know, vi video, um, 
vlogs and and all of this who are just you know who are well who are maybe believers who are maybe grifters um but who are who are not like part of the central conspiracy who are just who have their own incentives and have their own reasons for um latching on to this whether again yeah. whether it's because they are finding something meaningful and significant in reading the tea leaves or mm. are just see this as a way to like make some coin off of uh, a bunch of, yeah. of, of suckers. Um, but regardless, like they are contributing to the growth of this thing. Um, yes. And, and it isn't just Q or whoever's behind it in charge of it. It truly is these people who like, you know, priests in a, in a religion kind of can take it and, and move it their own way, decipher it their own way. Right. And I should qualify what I said about Q potentially being a government actor with the fact that I think it's equally likely that it is 4chan trolling. I know this better yeah. than anyone. <laughs> that has just completely gone off the rails. Right. Like the ultimate troll, biggest one ever, completely spun out of control. Um, and, and I think that that's almost just as likely. Um, but... Some of the things, like like the Dilly Plaza thing I brought up, just give me such great pause. And even the fact, like, if you're to talk about Jeffrey Epstein now, you're kind of lumped in with those people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not – and that that's very useful to, I think, the – quite frankly, the federal government who is obscuring and hiding a lot of the tapes and a lot of the fact that it was maybe a blackmail operation and not just, you know, two people sex trafficking, mm-hmm. but something larger than that. That's been so obscured, and especially if you follow the Maxwell trial, you know, at things being ruled as not admissible by Maureen Comey, who's James Comey's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- there's, there's, it's very useful to kind of spin people off in this direction. And and could it just be that the, the, the accidental troll became useful in that way? I think I think almost certainly. Um, and there's other things like WikiLeaks and the people running the Julian Assange account have endorsed this theory that QAnon's a psyop because. When they were trying to put pressure on the American government to free Julian Assange and stop prosecuting him, at the time, QAnon believers believed that Julian Assange was already free. <laughs> that was something that QAnon people were thinking. So when people would be like, free Julian Assange, you'd be like, you idiot, he's already free. He's in the Bahamas. <laughs> like, you know, and wow. uh, <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and so there's almost so many things where it's like, it's like everything they believe is useful <laughs> to uh, right. to kind of get throwing a wrench in any analysis of power in this country um, from the and, – and, and this is the, the big debate, and I think this is part of why the left wing has had a weird response to 1-6, is that sometimes it's easy for us to look at these people and relate to them more than we relate to liberals and the media class because they're sometimes talking about the same things. Oh, we should work with them. We should talk to them. We should – these people, we're on the same side. we got the same enemies. I disagree with that take, um, but I think that's sometimes how uh, – people end up sympathetic or want to hand wave away things like one six because it feels that way sometimes on a base instinctual level, like you said earlier. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think I, I I don't know that it's necessarily useful for me to take my analysis of QAnon and then apply that to one six. Cause like you were saying, I I don't think, I think it showed the state's frailty. Um, I totally agree with you on that. And I think it was a bad look for sure. (laughs) And that is why they've responded. Yeah. It was a bad look. It was a bad look. It was, it really was, um, you know, even internationally. Mm-hmm. And I think and, – and so I don't think if there is a monolith or there is kind of a consensus opinion in, in the ruling class, I think it would 
they wouldn't have wanted 1-6 to go the way it did or happen at all. But there could have maybe been smaller actors and different people that were involved. Or, or and, and, you know, how useful is it to really suss that out? I don't know, because at the end of the day, I think the points you made earlier in the pot are the important ones. That this represents a grave threat to democracy. That this could just as easily be used against us. It represents this rising tide of fascism that we should all be worried about and, frankly, organizing against. And that, that was my big takeaway um, what, from 1-6 and that, that we left the first episode we ever did on was this is not the time to throw up our hands and go home and say, oh, this is out of control. This is the time that we have to go and meet this threat. Because, look, the, the, like you were saying, the state actors, the law enforcement, the people who are supposed to be containing this threat, a lot of times are sympathetic to it. Mm. And I do think that the role then kind of falls upon us if we do want justice in a free society and liberty and all these things we talk about. If we do want that, I do think it's something that we're going to have to fight and organize for to push back against this rising tide. Um, yeah, and, and I think, too, that... Um, You know, often people will, or I don't know, like in response, the response that in response to the to the thread that I did the other day, I had a bunch of people basically being like, "Well, like, so what? <laughs> like, what? Like, what? <laughs> like, what? Like, what are we supposed to do with with this information? With this analysis? Like, you're just trying to sell fucking books? Like, you fucking live? Uh, <laughs> and and I think that. I mean, my initial response to that is like, fuck you, but also, yes, I am trying to sell books <laughs> because <laughs> that's how I make money. Uh, but, yeah. uh, but, but also, like, okay, but, like, yeah, so what? Like, because the reality is that, especially in a moment of kind of low ebb of politicization and after, in the kind of, like, hangover of the... Um, years of feeling of potential with Bernie um, and the kind of stimulation of our political imagination that I think a lot of us experienced experienced, um, over the past couple of years. Uh, It's, you know, it was like, like fuck liberal democracy, like fuck, like, like, like you said, like throw, like just throw our hands up. And I think that, Part of why this is important and why we need to have a sophisticated and nuanced understanding of um, the forces of reaction is precisely because the liberals and the Democratic Party do not have the wherewithal, the ability, or the willingness to fight for the things that they say they believe in. Or just govern at all. Or just or just govern at all. And so in this way, it presents us with an organizing opportunity where we can talk Big to time. normal people who believe all kinds of crazy mm-hmm. things. <laughs> and... and yeah. And and say, like, you know, you are probably worried <laughs> about, um, I don't know, like, no, like I don't know, I, 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 people, 
people are freaked out by that. <laughs> people, like, yeah. pe- people do not, um, people, do, for the most part, do not look kindly on uh, on fascists. Um, even if there's like a solid uh, minority of this country who just like are down, the rest of the rest of the yeah. people in this country are are not. Even if they're even if they're con- sort of conservative um, in some respects, but this presents us with an organizing opportunity because we can correctly and justifiably say to them to people who are who are worried about the rise of fascism the rise of a kind of militant white supremacy um that yes one response to this is kind of immediate um confrontation in the streets uh with you know mass mobilization of um you know of unions of 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 uh of church communities like of, of all of all the kinds of um you know antifa super soldiers yeah antifa super soldiers <laughs> exactly but, but also but that ultimately like ultimately the real anti-fascist struggle is to create a society where fascism can't exist and yes that is not something that that the Democratic Party is interested in. It's not something that uh, it's not something that that capitalism can do because capitalism is what creates fascism. Uh, yes. And so, like, if you really, <laughs> like, if you really, if you really want to do something about this, then we need to start like thinking differently about the kind of society that that we that we live in and that we are you know organizing and building um and drawing that drawing that connection um and drawing that line back to our like broader political vision and the horizon that we are striving for um Mm -hmm. is is why this is why this is important because it's what is at stake um yeah. and it's you know i don't i'm not going to say it's like the only justification or even the most important justification but it's like it's one <laughs> it's one of the threads that we have to weave together um mm-hmm. as we are like telling people the story of the kind of the kind of world that we want um and why yeah. they should also want it <laughs> um yeah 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 um, yeah and I think full, and that's why I think I earlier in the episode was like I don't like this outright sensationalization of like they're all white supremacists and they're just racists and want blood. You have to look at what in capitalism, what about our society, what about our incentives, how we're taught to interact with each other, how we're incentivized to kind of have a comfortable life, and what we think ensures that, how that creates these people. Sure, white supremacy and racism is a major aspect of it for certain sections of that whole unit more than others. But there's a million things about capitalist society and, and the late date of it we're in that have kind of enabled and created these people. Mm. Um, and that, for me, is the analysis that's so important. And it's not about going and talking with these people and finding common ground. 
but understanding what are the issues that they have with this system, what is it about this system that they're trying to protect that has created and mobilized this mass movement that's anti-democratic, authoritarian, and does want blood. It does, truly. Um, And, yeah, I think, like you said, though, it's one of many threads and one of many reasons why it's so important we build that better society. Yeah, we have to stave off these people, and yeah, the threat of capitalism is, is pretty intense. But you even look at COVID and our response to it, that the, the death that we're just comfortable with, that creates the fascist mindset. Mm-hmm. That enables the fascist mindset. And, it, and like you said, the, the, the liberals, the Democratic Party, they aren't necessarily interested in building that better society because they too, they share more in common with the people at the Capitol riot than any leftist does which is that they are comfortable within this system and feel that it works for them. And there's a certain shit, I don't even know if it's a certain level, there's an infinite level of acceptance of death and suffering that these people are willing to take to keep the fucking system rolling. And, and that is the commonality between the liberals and the fascists, that that's what we have to organize against. Mm. And that's why I love your point, we got to go talk to the normal people, because at the end of the day... That is that is who we are in league with more than the liberals or the fascists or the, and the people in the seats and halls of power and high up in the professional class that feel that this is working for them. Because there's a whole lot more people that feel it's not. Right. <laughs> that is for sure. Um, and and are there some people that storm the Capitol that feel it's not working for them and, and that motivated them? Sure. But then there's propagandists, Tucker Carlson namely, who take that frustration and who take that feeling of being left behind and completely spin it back into reinforcing the exact problem. Mm. Um, and, man, it's, it, I mean, it's brilliant what you said, and I just really think that, that that's really the lesson, is that this is an organizing opportunity, even beyond just fighting in the streets, which is what I normally call for. Talking with people and, and building a movement for a better world and a desire for a better world. Because, honestly, even within the, the protest movement, the imagination of a better world isn't always there, you know? It sometimes very much feels like that imagination, especially now, and, and you talk about the Bernie hangover, I think that's so instructive, not only to why people outright want to dismiss 1-6 because they're so fed up with the liberal democracy, but that that's really stifled any belief that we could build something better um, that's able to stave off these things. Mm-hmm. And... And, you know, we uh, we did a collab with this guy who does shirts on Grateful Dead tour, and we did Deadheads Against Fascism with our <laughs> podcast logo. And we sold oh, out yeah. in, like, three, <laughs> three show dates. Mm-hmm. And these are, like, normal peace and love people for the most part, you know, that aren't like, yeah, let's go fucking kill them. Like, they're just, you know... But the common masses are like, oh, yeah, I'm against fascism, fucking of course. And there was, I had a friend who, who got a shirt, and he was like, he's my most capitalist friend, does not like to talk to me about China. You know, he <laughs> he's, has a very comfortable, high-paying gig. Um, and even he goes, well, as a capitalist, I'm very worried about fascism. And I think that if there is ever a sell to be made to the people in the halls of power, if we don't improve the society a little bit and make things a little better... There's something much worse waiting. Um, and I think that pitch is even more important for those people than it is for the common people. Mm. Because 
quite frankly, I don't think it's going to go well for anybody. <laughs> um, it's it's going to look pretty nasty. Well, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because there are definitely, I mean, there, again, like there are, uh, fractions of the capitalist class there are industries there are sectors that are already that are materially invested in uh a kind of fascistic politics like i have no doubt in my mind that like the security and defense industries and military contractors and uh with probably wide swaths of the tech industry um you know probably like wouldn't put up too much of a fight <laughs> no, <laughs> like no, and no. probably uh would be uh actively supportive are actively supportive um I and know i think that for, for them it goes into yes for sure and i think for them it goes into this belief in empire yeah and defending it at all costs yeah. and that we will accept whatever. I mean, Mark Zucker, you're talking about the tech industry. He gets his hair cut like Marcus Aurelius and like talks <laughs> about the Romans and shit all the time. Yeah. You know? Like the, yeah. Yeah. And, and these people view themselves as the, the stewards of empire. And if fascism is what it takes to protect that power and protect that empire, I think they're totally okay with it. Right. Um, and for me, it's more the people, it's more the, more normal people who identify as capitalists but really shouldn't be in league with the capitalist sure. class. Yeah. That I think there's a sell with of yeah. yeah, this is probably bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um and and listen, there's a huge propaganda campaign to work against that and make it seem like what we're offering is gonna be bad and horrible for everybody. Yeah. And that's something we always have to work against. But yeah, I downplaying these threats is only gonna hurt us uh rhetorically. Mm-hmm. Like a hundred percent. And and that's why I think this nuanced conversation we had tonight is so important because, you know, yeah, there's real gripes with how the media and the liberal class and the political state and the security state has handled 1-6 and operated afterwards. But to dismiss it outright and to act like there's not this huge looming threat, it, it, it's just going to hurt us. And it's also going to leave us unprepared for what's coming. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of the, the major thing there. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, but I yeah, agree. dude, this was, yeah, this was this was excellent, man. I really appreciate you coming on. This was an amazing conversation, uh, absolutely brilliant. I really appreciate it. Of course, yeah, and uh, prayers up for uh, for your co-host and co co-host yeah. and his family. <laughs> yeah, 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 big time. And um, so, paperback coming out maybe uh, late late spring, <laughs> early can't, summer. Can't forget to sell the, sell those fucking books. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. Let's do. Well, I think it's going to be important to read. And yeah. the thread you put on Twitter, I think that's. It was such an important analysis. I was really glad I got to talk to you about it. Cool. Yeah. And um, and I just, I, I think that's hugely instructive. We have a book club that we just started with Inside Agitator. I think oh, cool. we'll, once the paperbacks out, we'll uh, we'll eventually move on to that. We're doing Bell Hooks right now. R.I.P. Um, and um, do you want to talk about your work with Strikewave at all? Do you want to plug that? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I am a freelance journalist, uh, and one of the projects that I work on is, um, with the Strikewave editorial collective. It is a, um, uh, we put out a newsletter, uh, email newsletter, um, on Mondays is kind of a, a roundup of the previous week in labor news. And then 
It's like every other week. Usually on Wednesdays, we put out a um, <clears throat> an original piece of reporting um, or commentary um, or an interview with somebody in labor who's doing interesting th- doing interesting things, uh, and yeah, you can sign up. Um, it's it's a really uh, it's a really good <laughs> project that I'm proud to be uh, proud to be involved in. All right, hell yeah! And I think with the anti work movement ramping up. And all these things going on, I think that analysis and looking at that is mm-hmm. so important in how we're going to build power and actually build this better world. Yeah, and ultimately stop fucking fascism. That's yeah. that's the that's that's the real uh, that's the bow to put on the end of this one. But uh, yeah, man, dude, thanks again. This was awesome. Of course, thanks for having me on. All right, yeah, for sure. Um, all right, thanks for listening, guys. We love you. We'll be back next week with something else. Um, appreciate you guys listening.